1904, we venture outside of Europe for the very first time to the USA and St. Louis, Missouri. The lessons surely were learned from a disastrous games in Paris four years previous, right? No, they were not. With six months of Olympic Games, only 12 nations represented, more racism than you can shake a stick at, and the most ridiculous Olympic marathon of all time. It is 1904 and St. Louis. But for all that, we have a special guest on the pod for the very first time. We're not alone. You're not alone. And that is Paddy O'Leary, an Irish ultra runner who had recently a short film come out as well about his running, which was uh, called Coming Home, a choc de volo. He also played lacrosse internationally. We played lacrosse together many years ago, which is how we know each other. And is a bit of a hero in the Irish lacrosse community. Now he's based over in San Francisco in California, and he's got a bit of marathon experience as well. So there's no better man to speak about the most ridiculous and dangerous marathon of all time. Paddy O'Leary, welcome to the podcast. How's it going, lads? Glad to be here. Glad to chat about some madness. <laughs> there is an awful lot to talk about in this podcast, but I think before we get into everything that happened in St. Louis and all the terrible things that happened, we'll just dive straight into the marathon. Yeah. Do you know, this was one of the first stories I ever heard about the Olympics, and it's the first thing that really got me into the Olympics, like, because it's just an absolute madcap story just when you think you've found like the maddest participant in it it goes a little further now James E. Sullivan he, he kind of contributed to why this event became would we say deadly in the literal sense almost uh, <laughs> yeah he um he wanted to test the effect of dehydration on the human body and uh, he thought where better to test this than at a marathon in blistering heat with only two water stations one at the six mile mark and another at the 12 mile mark. And then as a precaution though, because he, you know, health and safety always comes first. Uh, there were a number of cars with physicians, which turned up uh, huge amounts of dust and dirt into the air and straight at the runners. Paddy, how do you like those conditions? Oh, it sounds like an ultra, somebody ultra marathons video. <laughs> Mad in the mountains. Yeah, it just sounds far from ideal anyway. And I also like the fact that they didn't, I don't think they told the runners that there was only going to be two inches. <laughs> it was like the, they didn't tell everyone they were doing this scientific study, which I guess in terms like I'm a scientist and uh, uh, by trade and that's a blinded study. So mm-hmm. they were doing it correctly, I think, in terms of a scientific background, just not very fair on the runners. And do we know what the results were? Like, did, did we discover that dehydration is bad or what was the outcome of this? Was the outcome that you're meant to take more water when you run? Like, who would have thought? (laughs) It was a common area of research at the time, the effects of dehydration on the human body. And I think they didn't really learn anything that uh, they didn't know before when Mm. it came to pure dehydration. But there were just so many factors in this that made it so horrible. Besides the classic dehydration, one of the water stops they did have was I think it was slightly poisoned water as well. So it wasn't uh, actually... Which which is actually a common theme in this Olympics. (laughs) But anyway, more on that later. (laughs) And uh, I think one of the worst parts of it is that, well, the dust you mentioned, and nobody knew that was going to be the case. Apparently they had to reroute the course like a day before the event itself because 
Uh, the weather conditions had basically washed away the roads they were originally going to use, hence these dusty tracks. And there was one athlete in particular who I think was coming into the event as a favorite, mm. uh, John Lorden. He had won the Boston Marathon the previous year after... One mile, he was vomiting. Always <laughs> so a good just, sign. <laughs> he got out of the stadium, had, I guess, a few hundred meters of the dust and started vomiting. Cramps then followed a, a mile later and he didn't last very long. So not a great start for the marathon. No. Now, Paddy, myself and Chris put a lot of pride in our research and we do a huge amount of research for all of our epipods. And one book that we heavily relied upon this week was the wildest race ever, which was a which is a children's book by Megan McCarthy, a children's picture book. It's brilliant. I recommend everyone to uh, have a look at it. The Greeks obviously prided themselves in the marathon being their event, but it doesn't seem like they really cared too much about this St. Louis Games. Um, in Megan McCarthy's book, she says the runners rounded the stadium. Some ran harder than others. Marathons were invented in ancient Greece, but the Greek runners did not amaze spectators on that particular day. The nine men ran bunched and with great shocks of curly hair, wrote one reporter, and were more invested in personal appearance than covering ground. But I don't think any of the Greeks uh, started vomiting. So, I mean, maybe they, maybe they took the uh, right uh, approach to this marathon. How many, how many of them finished it though? None. I, I, I don't think I had none. Yeah. <laughs> it was more just to appear at the start and look um, handsome. Sometimes it's all you need to do. Aesthetics over athletics. Uh, you did a bit of research into the marathon as well here, Paddy. Is there any particular athletes who stand out for you in your reading? I think the ingenuity of, of the guy who crossed the finish line first. Fred Lortz. Yes. I think uh, that might be the one that, that stands out to the fore for like 10 miles and then either he cramped or started vomiting or something. So he got in, he got into a car and he took a ride for a couple of miles and then he felt better and he's like, oh, maybe I'll finish it. He jumped back out again and he ran to victory. And <laughs> before he got a chance, everyone jumped on top of him, gave him his, uh, his sash and he was, he was saying, no, I'll just roll with this same victory. And then people were running up and they were like, yeah, this dude took a ride got an uber for half of it <laughs> he shouldn't be the winner so then they ended up uh they ended up disqualifying him so he's disqualified in the games but he ended up he was like fourth the previous year in boston he was a good runner fourth the previous year in boston and he won it the following year without getting a, a ride in a car or without getting caught Ooh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but even back then how fast how fast were cars back then um faster than a person who's coughing and vomiting <laughs> <laughs> from dehydration I wonder even with his car, like he was still, what was his time? Brutal. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, I think the, the winning time in the end was three hours and 28 minutes. So it, it is the worst marathon winning time of all time. Mm. And I mean, it's fair enough. I will, we'll go into the guy who actually won it and what happened to him. But Fred Lertz, he was disqualified after getting to the finish line in three hours and 13 minutes. So as you said, Paddy, he got, got sick after what was in mile nine, hopped into a car and was actually waving to his fellow runners and people watching as he went by because he was like, oh, you, you idiots, is like still running in this. I, I'm done with this. And the car he was in broke down. And so he decided he was going to hop out and run the rest of the way when he actually got caught out. And it was also, he also got a picture taken with uh, Alice Roosevelt, who's the, uh, the president's daughter. 
And just before he got his medal, he was was revealed that he had cheated. He did immediately accept that he had cheated and then he tried to cover it up saying it was just a practical joke because he was just uh, such a barrel of laughs and uh, so the AAU which was the American Athletics Union at the time they they banned him originally for life after this but as you mentioned Paddy he ended up winning the Boston Marathon the next year so the the ban didn't last for very long yeah turns out he was a pretty decent runner but much like everyone else in this marathon really really struggled with the conditions it's funny like we talk about these conditions but like when you're describing like the dust and the, the they said like seven or ten big hills or like 300 feet i'm like that's a trail that's a handy trail race in a bit because like i'm i'm not a road runner i'm a trail and mountain and ultra runner and like some of the races we do are up three thousand foot passes and whatnot and i'm like oh, that sounds kind of handy the course race course sounds real fast doesn't it <laughs> so what you're saying is these lads were weak <laughs> maybe <laughs> you've actually done the marathon you did the boston marathon am i right i've done a couple of marathons yeah would, would, like in the early days like one of my first races in 2015 i only started running late when i realized i was past the will lacrosse and i was like oh i'm actually handy enough for running so i started doing it in like 2014 2015 and i've done like road marathons i've done one two three i've done boston i did Oakland was my first around the 245 and that qualified for boston in 2016 and around a 237 and then i ran boston the following year and ran a 230 i only increased by seven minute increments so mm-hmm. like i was like oh, by my fifth one or sixth one i'll be breaking two hours by my logic in late 2018 i was training for this 50 mile trail race here in marine the north face endurance challenge which is one of the, like the fastest most competitive trail races 50 mile trail races in the world it was in best shape of my life for it it was in mid-november but then we had the terrible fires in santa rosa north of here and so like for two weeks san francisco was just enveloped in smoke so they had to end up canceling the race i'm like oh, i'm in the best shape of my life what am I going to do? So I signed up for a road marathon two weeks later, the California International Marathon. And I did like one or two treadmill workouts to see, oh, how can, can I run fast again? And ended up running a 220 at that. It was just like a minute outside of the, the at the time was the Olympic qualifying standard. It was 219. And I was like, so I was contemplating training for the road marathon, switching from mountains to roads to try qualify for the Irish team the following year. Because I was like, if I could get down to 215, 216, which would like solid blocks of training, I thought I could. Then, come uh, like a month later in January 2019, they redesigned the Olympic qualification standards yet that you had to run faster than 211 to automatically get into the Olympics. And I was like, that might have been a bit too far out of my reach because an Irish lad hadn't done that in 20 years. But then since then, actually, two or three Irish guys have actually ran like 211, 212. So they would have qualified for Tokyo if it was going ahead. But I decided to make a decision, but I love running in the mountains and I wouldn't have been able to do that if I was training for a road marathon. And so I decided to follow my heart as opposed to, even though running at the Olympics, trying to get into the Olympics would have been cool. But I like the hills. And I get to the world running in the hills, so it's cool. The views are much better. That's, that's an incredible story. I mean, you're still you're still very young, also for a marathon runner. I mean, the, I think you, you'd still have plenty of time to to pursue that if you wanted to. But that that route and that story follows what happens at the early Olympics quite perfectly. That would fit in an early modern Olympic story. A guy who has really nothing to do with the marathon, like in the first marathon in 80, uh, 1896, I think only a couple of like only a couple of the Greeks had actually run the distance before, and one Hungarian. Everyone else was just doing it for the first time. So uh, yeah, coming out of a completely different discipline and uh, making it into the marathon team would have been very fitting. I think for the time. Yeah, you would have had to come up with some sort of crook though if you were in the early uh, marathons because like you would have had to either 
uh, swear by stopping at mile 15 to have a flagon of brandy or like have a routine where you fast for three days and then eat five whole chickens before you run like it, you'd have to you'd have to find your niche to uh to, to make it interesting enough to get onto the olympopod yeah 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 i'll take the brandy over the fasting i think <laughs> Speaking of stopping regularly and, uh, well, the brandy will come, but Ruth, I think uh, it's time for you to tell us a little bit about your favorite athlete at this marathon. Yeah, yeah, he might be, I think, probably one of my favorite athletes of all time. Felix Caravajal, he was a Cuban postman. And in the tradition of early Olympic marathon uh, greats, as we have discussed, he was a, a penniless man who he didn't really run all that much, but he was a postman. So like he had to walk around the island uh, occasionally going by swift mail and running and uh, delivering his mail. Um, he raised funds for his journey by running on the spot in Havana, collecting coins from passersby. Uh, but clearly enough passersby passed by because at some stage in summer of uh, Night Show 4, Felix arrived in New Orleans. Now, he may have been determined and talented, but he did have some clear character failings because while in New Orleans, he lost all his money gambling and had all of his possessions stolen. So he then had to hitchhike the rest of the way to St. Louis. He's reported to have arrived just as the marathon was about to begin. Uh, he had no shoes because they had also been stolen. Someone lent him a pair of shoes and also gave him a scissors to cut his long trousers to make them short. Once he arrived there, like, I mean, this is clearly quite a feat to get here after everything that's happened. I mean, his own fault, but it clearly it, it, it was took a lot of effort. But after coming all this way, uh, facing all these challenges, he didn't seem overly focused on actually winning the race. It was reported that he stopped whenever someone cheered for him to say hello and practice his English. But also because he had had all his money stolen, he was quite hungry. So at one point he found a large bag of peaches in the back of somebody's car. He took them and ate them, which, you know, grant, give him a bit of sustenance. But uh, that wasn't enough. So he stopped again several miles later at an orchard. But there he ate far too many apples. He got a bit of a stomach ache and he had to have a nap. Felix came forth. <laughs> <laughs> there's a man who enjoys the journey not the destination yeah. i think you you would uh resonate with that patty i guess oh without a doubt but like this is actually the comparisons to trail and ultra running like keep coming in here when like our races are so long we're out there for hours upon hours upon hours once you get on beyond an hour or two you need to continue fueling so we often say about ultra running it's a race of consumption uh, as often more so than a race of running because when you're in a race that lasts for like 24 hours you need to keep fueling so like these, we go to these running races and you go to every like seven or eight miles, there'll be an aid station. And depending on what country you're racing in, the aid station will be tailored to the local food. So like we're running, there's this race we do every year, um, Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc. It's a hundred miler that does circumnavigation of Mont Blanc. But the aid stations have like charcuterie boards and cheese. And all of, you just need the red wine and you're sorted. Like, but you go into that and you're like, your stomach's a bit, you've been eating sugar gels for like the last six hours and you see this cheese and you're like, oh, glorious. But then the ones in America, over here in America, the aid stations just look like a, a petrol station, like food with like just pretzels and sugar and on. And but potatoes, potatoes with salt are fucking are gold sand. They're brilliant. Back to Felix. Did you see his mustache? Have you seen photos of him? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
He's got a very impressive mustache. Kind of, a, he was going for the aesthetics over the athletics, it seems as well. But I also like his style because obviously, you know, he did look different to everyone else because he was just wearing his normal clothes that he cut up at the uh, starting line. So, um, yeah. Now, in the book that the children's book that I discussed earlier, uh, the wildest race ever, Megan McCarthy does say he cried at the finishing line. But I like everything else I have heard. It must have been tears of just joy because he seems. He doesn't seem to have cared particularly that he came forth. I mean, if you're taking a nap, I mean, he took the nap because of the cramps though, right? Because he had eaten too many apples. He was too full of apples, so he had to have a sleep. I think the apples were bad though. Some people would say Uh, that the apples were bad. A bad apple. Yeah, I had had thought that the peaches had been in... So I had read somewhere, like, and this is, had read it years and years ago, that the peaches at the back of the car, because it was so hot, had kind of fermented. And those were what caused him to be sick later. But... Mm. One thing is the amount of parallels to a common a fictional story that many people, many of our Irish listeners might be familiar with. The comedian Tommy Tiernan had a story about a marathon runner called Declan Moffat from Glenamaddy, who jumped into the London Marathon with no training, wearing a saw doctor's t-shirt with the arms cut off for aerodynamic purposes. And he went and hammered out for the first two miles with all the East Africans. And he was running so hard and he was so tired, he didn't know how to stop. So he figured the only way he would stop was just to veer off into the ditch. And he did. And then all the, the lads who were leading the race were like, where's Declan gone? Where is Declan gone? But his fuel was a bag of oranges. <laughs> fictional character. So I, I don't know. I didn't, like, that's where myself and Chris have a good mutual friend, the goalkeeper for the Irish national lacrosse team, who is from near Glenamady in Mayo. And his nickname was Declan Moffat, Kevin Quinn. So uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a lot of parallels with Declan, with, uh, Declan Moffat's marathon story in the London Marathon, which is completely fictional. The inspiration must be there. I mean, the, for stories like that, that's, uh, yeah. that's there a lot of parallels there. That's for sure. And I just love that, like, despite his nap and stopping to chat to people and taking whatever snacks he can get. Stopping every time someone cheers for him. <laughs> and not eating for like 40 hours before the race and losing all his money. Despite all of that, he finished in fourth, fourth place. place. And the... The sad thing about this, and in the previous two podcasts we've spoken about, like we talk about first, second, and third place in a modern context, which is you're getting gold, silver, and bronze, which didn't really happen for the first two. But here was the first time where gold, silver, and bronze was actually introduced. So we could have gotten an Olympic medal if not for the fact that, uh, well, maybe his nap was a bit too long. Mm. However, if you look at the winner of this race, Maybe Felix should have been in third because the first guy who crossed the line was disqualified. Maybe the second guy who crossed the line should have been disqualified as well. Maybe he should have been, Chris. Why don't you tell us a little bit about him? Thomas Hicks. I will start. Where should we start? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like... (laughs) So... Look, I've, I've expressed sometimes that, like, when you do doping so ridiculously badly that it's almost an art form so he was the first kind of high profile doper was yes. he yeah we could say that and he probably didn't know that he was doping as well yeah, so. he, doping wasn't illegal <laughs> for many many more olympics yes. so this this like doping was completely um it was grand you know just whatever you could you need to do to get over that finish line so he was really suffering with all of the conditions we've laid out a couple of times now, and particularly the dehydration aspect. So he was really begging for water on a number of occasions, and he had a couple of handlers who traveled with him. I think all of the athletes had people 
drive along with them or cycle along with them and was basically taking care of them uh, to the the worst of their abilities it seemed but he was begging for water his team handlers would not give it to him the best they could offer him at first was a dose of strychnine now paddy uh we're gonna get your uh scientific uh, (laughs) information on what strychnine does to the body i'm sure you could tell us a lot more but his first intake was strychnine and egg whites and clearly the egg whites are important like clearly the egg whites are really important to this strychnine is found in rat poison so that seems like a smart thing to, to say. But wasn't it the case that like they believed that low doses of strychnine was a stimulant? Yeah. High doses of it, Jesus, cause a poisoning which results in muscular convulsions and eventually death through asphyxia. So that isn't the ideal thing for performance, <laughs> I imagine, muscular consul- convulsions on the side of a road. That was uh, believed to be, uh, to believe to, it was used, commonly used as like a, a stimulant. That's mad. In very small doses, it's a stimulant. It also kind of cuts off part of your body or the system that uh, allows you to stop. So it, in, in the sense of performance enhancing, it your, your body will just believe it can just keep on going or has to keep on going, uh, which I guess is quite helpful in this situation yeah. to a certain extent. But he didn't just have one small dose of strychnine. He was given, I think, at least three. And the second dose was... A bit of brandy in I as well. I think it was well. a flagon of brandy. A flag- was it a flagon of brandy? <laughs> well, a flagon of brandy, egg whites, and again, strychnine. Again, the egg whites, very important. <laughs> I a bit of protein in there as well. And no matter what, they wouldn't give him the water. The best he got uh, water-wise was he was doused uh, with warm water at some stage which i guess is fairly close to being given actual water but strychnine brandy and egg whites was as uh, as far as they were going to go like and he, started he started hallucinating to yeah he right? started hallucinating at, i think it was at mile 20 mile 20 yeah and he believed at that stage that he still had about 20 miles to go apparently so he started really going like pushing the pedal to the metal he was like right i've got to got to get going here and soon afterwards was then begging his handlers to actually let him just lie down and sleep but he was incredibly close to the line at this stage so as he entered the uh, stadium again to actually finish the race in second place at the time now, some people say that his handlers knew that Fred Lortz had cheated, so there was a real incentive to get him to finish. And on the way up to the line, they actually lifted him up. His legs kept moving. He believed that he was still running. So he was like uh, like a dog being picked up and the legs keep moving as if they're running <laughs> or swimming. And he just kept going. He was dragged over the line which is why I believe he does not deserve to be the gold medalist. I don't think like if your coaches are literally lifting you over the finish line, that that's strictly speaking a victory. Yeah. And he then required like an hour or two of medical attention before he could even be brought to the hospital. Oh, I so wonder he was why. completely <laughs> destroyed. And it's a kind of a miracle that he survived. One of the quotes about strychnine that I, um, it was in one of the articles that you sent me during the week, that I just, it just came across up here from uh, H.G. Wells' novella, The Invisible Man. The title character said, strychnine is a grand tonic to take the flabbiness out of a man. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> listeners, listeners were not endorsing. 
<laughs> um, oh. Now, I've got to uh, go fast forward a couple of decades because in the 2016, a weightlifter, I think from Kyrgyzstan, actually, who won a gold medal, got disqualified when it was discovered he had taken strychnine. I know it. So um, I, I thought that was very old school. I, like, I kind of, I kind of admired that. You know, let's 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 not go for anything high tech. Let's just go for rat poison. Well, the the Olympics is all about commemorating and respecting the history of this great uh, sporting event. Yeah. And what better way to, to celebrate than to use one of the very first instances of doping when trying to? Uh, I'm surprised. Dope your way to gold. I'm surprised this team didn't use that as a mm. uh, defense. <laughs> <an> excuse. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a few other interesting athletes as well besides uh well the guy who finished first and uh was disqualified fred lords thomas hicks who got gold in the end and felix caraval who should have got bronze but finished fourth and there's the man who i believe is the real hero of this story but probably the least spoken about elbert corey he is my real hero he finished in second place no drama whatsoever he just ran his race, uh, didn't seem to collapse at any point, or if he did, nobody cared. Uh, he just wasn't really spoken about. And he represented the USA, as we look back at it now, but he was actually a Frenchman, and he was a professional strike breaker. So he was brought to the USA to be a strike breaker. So I didn't know that was a profession at the <laughs> time. So just to hop around cities of the world and be available to do whatever work needed to break the picket line whenever there was a strike. And in Megan McCarthy's uh, children's book on the topic, I think it says something along the lines of workers didn't like him very much. <laughs> but also when he when he finished the race, I think he he turned he he's reported to have turned around to the officials and said like, "Oh, is it over? God, like I could do like I could do another couple of miles. This seems like a really short race." A little bit like what you were saying, Paddy. It sounds like perfect conditions. Um, Albert Corey was the same. He was like, yeah, yeah, like, come on, like, this was easy. Do another lap? Yeah. Maybe he <laughs> I was the original it. ultra runner. Exactly, yeah. Philippides, the original guy who ran the first marathon. Because how long was the original? He ran for two days. So he was the original ultra runner. I think it should have been like a, an ultra marathon. But he did die at the end of it, yeah? <laughs> 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 sorry, sorry to bring that up, but like, he did die at the end. <laughs> We also had our first African runners of the uh, Olympics, our first black African runners, uh, Len Tao and uh, Jan Manciani. You want mm. to tell us a bit about them, Ruth? Well, um, you're not a huge fan of James E. Sullivan. No. This event, like the last one in Paris, was connected with a World Fair, which is why it took six months and was such a disaster in many respects. World fairs were, by their very nature, racist. They exalted the kind of perceived enlightenment and superiority of white men with a focus on science, the taming of nature. But there was also a growing interest in a deeply racist strain of anthropology. And it wasn't uncommon to have demonstrations of what they believed uh, to be the opposite of enlightenment. So the backward barbarian world in literal human zoos, which is really as awful as they sound. So they had indigenous people from across the world corralled to these fairs and forced to perform for these almost exclusively white audiences. So James E. Sullivan looked at this and he said, oh, I think this would be great now if um, we got this in with the Olympics as well. I, I mean, I think it's fair to say he was a white supremacist. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say. It's fair to say. Fair to say. He wanted to demonstrate the physical superiority of white, particularly Anglo-Saxon men. So he had anthropology days 
which took place between August 11th and 12th and included 100 paid Indigenous men participating in a number of events, including baseball throwing, running, pole climbing, tug of war, to crowds of about 10,000 spectators. Uh, as you mentioned, there were two South Africans, uh, Len Tawiani and Jan Mashsihani, who had been brought over to the fair to, to take part in a Boer War reenactment. And they were allowed, very graciously, to take part in the marathon. Now, I think it was Len Tawiyane who came, I think, eighth, was it? Ninth. Ninth, ninth. ninth. Um, and th- it was to great disappointment, including great disappointment in the crowd, because he got chased off course for, I think, one or two miles by a rabid dog. It happened and to a they- friend of mine in a 100-miler race two years ago in Croatia. He got bitten in the arse by a dog. <laughs> he had to leave the race. So it's like 50 miles into a 100-mile race, middle of the night, running to this random little town in Croatia village and a, a dog took a chunk out of his arse oh. where did he finish he won it. <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna ask have you ever had any encounters with uh, animals during your running days yeah yeah i almost stunned on a baby rattlesnake a few years back missed it by like three or four inches and the, the baby rattlesnakes they don't know how to stop biting so when they bite you they just pump everything into you so that's quite concerning i mean it could be like strychnine could have the effect of like strychnine and you know <laughs> I'll run into uh, deer and bobcats and coyotes and things like that a lot over here and rattlesnakes. But I haven't seen... Uh, but mountain lions, we have a lot, and bears as well. But mountain lions, we have them a lot around here, but you never see them. But you know there's always one watching you. And could you outrun one? No. Mountain lion, no, but they never attack you. They, they're, they're quite quiet. Bears is the biggest thing we'd have to have, be more concerned about running in the mountains. The bears we have are black bears down in California. We don't have grizzlies. Those ones, you just be loud and scare them off. Grizzlies further north in the US and in Canada, they're pretty dodgy. Uh, what I love about all of this is that everywhere I've read about this marathon or anything I heard about this marathon, it is painting the picture that it's the worst possible conditions of all time. They're pretty terrible. But we've got Paddy here basically putting it all into context of just a typical Saturday afternoon in the Californian uh, wilderness up and down the hills, which I think is very unique uh, in covering this story, so <laughs> it's pretty like, amazing. Do, do you think? Do you think to make things more interesting that maybe for uh, 2021, maybe we like bring in bears for the marathon? So there's a quick story that I'm going to tell about a similar kind of mad race that they competed in a couple of years ago. There's this competition called Ride and Tie. It's a team competition, two people and a, one horse, and you have to do ultra marathon distance course like 30 miles one person starts riding out on the horse ties them up on the trail starts running the runner comes behind catches up with the horse hops on board chases after the runner with the horse and they keep switching like that for the whole section and then to finish it you have to get all three across the line and this local woman from Marin just north of San Francisco Mary Tiscornia she's like 70 years of age she competed in the last 45 world championship riding ties the world championship riding tie only has people from California competing in it. it's a pretty small sport and um, but she I flew down to San Diego and competed with her and I ended up it was a 35 mile course and I think I ended up running like 33 of the miles and riding two of them because like I'd be running behind her riding the horse and she'd hop off start trotting along and I'd hop on the horse and I'd catch up with her immediately but the start of it, because all the runners and riders start at once, and this was in the desert, and there was rattlesnakes, there was rocks, there was dust everywhere. I'm splashing myself out of, like, cow water troughs. And uh, but at the start, because all the horses, there's just dust 
come here, you're running through a cloud of, of uh, dust and there's horses all around you and you're like, what is going on? So it kind of sounded like the start of the St. Louis Marathon, which is dust everywhere. But instead of cars, it was like horses. <laughs> I love that so much. That's amazing. And we're going to come up to poisoned water soon. <laughs> <laughs> Cow oh, water. <laughs> it's too perfect. It was July 4th. It was in San Diego where it's really warm in Southern California. And I literally sat down in the water trough halfway just to cool down. Amazing. Anything else in the marathon you want to cover? William Garcia of California nearly became the first fatality of the Olympic marathon oh. when he collapsed on the side of the road and was hospitalized with hemorrhaging. The dust had coated his esophagus and ripped his stomach lining. If he had oh. got out of the hour longer, he might have bled to death. Another <laughs> peculiar story from that. <laughs> well, Look, it's this, only the, the, close to death. Yeah. We will get to death very soon in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it ties in pretty well with the water, but I'll leave that as a teaser. I'm going to leave that one hanging as we go through some of the other incredible stories from this ridiculous Olympics. We spoke about that ride and tie world championship. I think it would have fit in perfectly with these games because for the most part, it was just an American Olympics because it is in St. Louis it was so difficult for people to get to not just a difficult place to get to but a very uninteresting place and uh, that's why we only had 12 nations represented every single episode we cause a beef we've got like the tug of wars the 10,000 meters Uh, yeah so so now it's St. Louis (laughs) with the American dominance you had basically American athletes competing against American athletes or North American athletes competing against each other for most of the events. In the previous Olympic pod, when we focused on Paris in 1900, there was a big discussion by uh, Bill Mallon, who writes a lot of interesting books on each Olympics as to what is a sport at the Olympics based on a number of categories, including the international aspect I think for this one, he just kind of threw it out the window. He was like, ah, they were just all Americans anyway. So everything is counted. And so that's why the USA won 70 out of the 94 gold medals at the Games. They won 21 out of the 22 track and field. In sports like boxing, tug of war, cycling, tennis, uh, they were all American athletes. So... We're not going to focus too much on the sports themselves yeah. here. I do think, like, just when you said the 70 of the 94 um, gold, like, it becomes even more striking when you look at the medal table as a whole. They won 238 medals overall, which was 223 more than the next on the uh, medal table, Germany. That just shows that basically there's no... I don't think there's any real reason to be concerned about covering the games as a whole here because there's no point. It was just an American game, so we'll focus on the most ridiculous stories and the anthropology days is something you mentioned as well designed to test the physical abilities of primitive indigenous people as part of this uh, white supremacy idea that James E. Sullivan had so the organizers presumed that all of these competitors were less intelligent the close connection to the natural world might give them a physical advantage though. So they planned it to coincide with the actual Olympics, fit in very much with the World Fair because there was a lot of these uh, human zoos going on. And in these games, they had the Mbuti tribe. So that's an indigenous pygmy group from the Congo. They had Native Americans, Filipinos, and some other uh, groups as well. But thankfully, the competitors didn't really 
perform as expected. They didn't really buy into this idea, and especially the Embudi tribe. In the 440-yard dash, so 400 meters, they uh, were really more interested in the starting gun, I guess, because uh, they must have wondered why there's a gun going off. Not so concerned about running around in a circle because they weren't told any of the rules. They were just put on a starting grid and then a gun went off. So maybe they thought they were being attacked. Uh, In the 100-yard dash, they ran backwards. Uh, and then in wobbly figure eights so they just started running around in the figure eight and uh, in the pole climb so they had two pole climbs one of them was dry one of them was a greased pole Uh, one man attempted to just remove his clothing before climbing up the pole (laughs) Uh, while one of his teammates chased away a photographer now i think here's another athlete who although he didn't really buy into the games must have had some kind of connection to the ancient olympics because as we know the ancient olympics were fully nude when people were competing removing clothing while climbing the pole yeah (laughs) but that just shows how ridiculous uh, that was and how disgraceful it was as well and that was another idea from james e sullivan who was a complete scumbag in uh, my view and is the scumbag of the week yeah, and will like, be for the next few Olympics yeah, as well. Yeah, I mean, like the, the only thing that I kind of have an issue with in calling him scumbag of the week is that like our other scumbags of the week have just been scumbags of the week. He was a white supremacist. I feel like, you know, we need a stronger word. We'll think about it. We'll think about it. Um, I, I think I think he is an ultra scumbag, maybe. We'll, Absolutely. We'll say, that, we'll say that to be, to not get a expletive put beside our itunes rating the 50-yard swim we had some swimming in a lake roof yeah so zoltan hamley was a hungarian swimmer and as we have heard the hungarians did quite well in the early and still in the in the pool and he took silver and bronze at the paris games and he'd go on to win four more medals at the uh, 1906 intercalated games and the 1908 london games but in these particular games in 1904, he won two gold in the 50-yard and the 100-yard freestyle. Uh, he had a fairly unique technique when compared to the Americans. He only used his arms and kept his legs straight. So he was faster than the Americans without using his legs. There was controversy in the 50-yard win. In the final, it was declared the result was too close, close to call between himself and the American Scott Leary. That was the, appear, uh, the opinion of the American judge. The Hungarian judge said Sultan had won it by a full yard. Now, Leary and Hamley got into blows. Uh, Leary started throwing insults at everybody. Um, he accused Hamley of having cheated and held him back in the final yards. Eventually... The judges managed to cool them down and they had a swim off with which Hamley uh, won convincingly, I think by six tenths of a second. It's nice to uh, cover some non-Americans winning medals. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) It is the first time that the swimming didn't take place in natural body of water because in 1896 we had the the bay, so the sea was used. We had the river Seine being used for 1900 but who would have thought that the river Seine would be a safer environment for swimmers than the lake that was built and used for these games and that brings me on to the water polo so water polo and swimming was in this lake uh, the water polo was a bit of a farce and uh, a real bone of contention 
uh, for the Germans in particular. And there was a lot of German-USA rivalry. For the water polo, they decided to use a partially inflated volleyball. They said, that'll, that'll do. <laughs> We could just, uh, we'll use that. It's a ball. Uh, it'll float in the water. Happy days. And that a goal could only be scored by holding the ball into the net, not throwing it into the net, which makes it sound a bit more like a water rugby game. Mm. The Germans, however, dubbed it soft water polo. Some people believe they just refused to compete. Others uh, believe that they weren't allowed to compete because in a lot of events, Although there were so many Americans taking part, they would not allow the Germans to compete in team events because they all didn't come from the same sporting club. So even though these Germans had come all the way from Europe to bloody St. Louis, they weren't allowed to compete in some team events because they didn't belong to the same club. Not a bad thing that the Germans didn't compete in the water polo, though, because while these events took place, uh, it was a six-month-long games, remember, uh, animals were allowed to uh, use the same lake, <laughs> which was created for water polo and swimming. And this maybe is going to make you think twice about the water you use in the future, Paddy, because within a year of the Games, four water polo athletes died of typhus because of the bacterial infection from the livestock that were using the lake as well. Now, are you sure about dipping your head into these trots? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still like a steel. <laughs> it's incredible. That, it's not a funny thing, I suppose, <laughs> that these four athletes died. Very not funny. It didn't happen at the Games itself, so I don't think it counts as the first actual fatality. But within months of the Games taking place, uh, a few of these athletes started to die. And yeah, maybe they should have just found a river for them to compete in the end. My typhus uh, vaccination is up to date, so I've been fine. <laughs> Good. <laughs> the German rivalry didn't end there. They were the largest contingent of athletes, I believe, outside of North America and the most successful, as you mentioned, Ruth. And they didn't like the way Americans did things in the water, particularly in diving. They brought their own diving board with them from Germany, which was a special <laughs> coconut matting. And they also didn't agree with the Americans on how the diving should be scored. So they believed it was all about the artistic movement in the air once you've dived, not about how you land in the water. History favors the Americans on that end because big splash, we all know, we're all diving experts when it comes to the Olympics. <laughs> big splash, big trouble. But the Germans believed that that shouldn't be the case. It came to a head where Alfred Braunschweiger decided that he would not compete in the bronze medal dive off against an American because he believed he'd already beaten him. So he didn't need to. Obviously, he didn't get the bronze medal. And the German commissioner to the World Fair had actually planned to donate a statue to the best diver. And he was so pissed off with everything that happened and the way the Americans were treating them that he just took it away out of anger. So no bronze statue to the diver there so the germans really weren't happy and i think there's a there's a good reason why they they weren't treated well actually nobody was treated well no. at this game so <laughs> i mean it shouldn't be really a topic that a, a group of athletes weren't treated well because everyone was uh treated like shit well there were some good stories no there were some good stories let's go to some happy stories <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean like, i'm not sure if i've got like i think i've got a couple of good stories comparatively to like everything else and um, in archery there were six female athletes who uh were the female athletes of the olympics um matilda matilda howell dominated winning three gold across team and individual events and her father 
Thomas Foster Scott also competed um, in archery. At 71 years, 260 days, he was the oldest Olympic athlete to compete. There's still hope for you, Chris. Yes, there uh, is. <laughs> a record he actually won to keep that long, um, but he is still, to this day, the oldest archer to have ever competed. And your favourite athlete of the last podcast, Ray Yuri, the standing jumping expert. I'm going to ask Paddy's opinion in a bit about the standing jumping, but yeah, he uh, he continued to dominate. Yes. Yes. <laughs> 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 he won three more standing jump goals. So that was the standing long jump, the standing triple jump, which I think would be abolished after this, and the standing high jump. Now, Paddy, what's your opinion on this? When you have a running version of all of these events and a standing version of these events, do you feel that the standing version is necessary? I think the stand well, the standing long jump is really relevant. A lot of us like it's a yes! a lot of us use it as like a like when for plyometrics I'm on it the standing long jump and actually it's a good test of agility which or strength which I don't have but I do it and like I go like a meter and I'm like yeah and then you look up the 1904 distance and it was probably like, I don't know how much longer than that in my defense I did say that it is exactly like Paddy said I, th- I think it is very necessary and it's very relevant in standardized testing for athletes nowadays but in competition When you've got people watching and you can watch someone fly in and jump double the length than a guy just standing there doing it. Oh, is it interesting to watch? The standing triple jump sounds so awkward. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's also the moving thing. So like, do you have to stand to stop? Then do your skip from a stop. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. There's a good reason why it was abolished after these games. I, I I like the standing high jump. I, I like that. Mm. Um, I guess what you're saying that it's not super, super interesting. But then like, I mean, is the shot push that interesting? Sorry, I have to say something like this once every episode, okay? <laughs> Basically, you're just attacking each and every individual track and field event. Yeah. And I think, well, until we get to... I'm going to give Paddy a chance to do that at the end of the show <laughs> as he, <laughs> as he uh, slops out of sport. I, I just mean that on track and field, there are, by its nature some events that are more interesting than others and that's why they're all taking place at the same time you can switch over you can press the red button and watch something else so you, you can watch the ten thousand meter <laughs> which is actually a really exciting race oh my god i agree with you there okay so it's good that we're getting we'll get it's good it's good to have a guest here yeah, so we have yeah. someone like a tiebreaker yeah. for each of these uh things we don't agree on this is good one of the most inspirational stories i think is george Iser a gymnast from the USA. He was a local boy competing and he won six medals at these games, three golds, two silver and one bronze. He did it all with a wooden prosthetic leg. (laughs) He lost his uh, lower left leg in an accident as a child and had to replace with a wooden prosthetic. Somehow, despite that, was a six-time medalist in the 1904 Olympics, which is incredibly impressive. I mean, I couldn't, I can't do any of these things with both my legs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's, that no, says that's much not. for me or uh, about his feet. But um, yeah, incredible stuff that uh, a real positive story among all the, uh, the bullshit of these games. We also had a couple of sports that I think are close to your heart, Paddy. At these games that lasted six months, there was one event every single day. 
So whether you like the shot put or not, or whether you like the standing long jump or not, if you want to watch Olympics every day for those six months in St. Louis, you had to go through them all. And there was also, now some people believe it was hurling, some people believe it was Gaelic football. There was a Gaelic game in the uh, St. Louis Olympics, and there was lacrosse as well. So lacrosse had a couple of appearances. The first one was here in 1904, and we had three teams. Uh, there was the it was a Canadian team, the Shamrock Lacrosse team. There was an American team from St. Louis, and then there was a team which are now known as the Mohawk Indians. They were an Iroquois. They were a native team, which uh, I think is very important as well. I mean, I think you're the best man to tell us about the importance of the Native Americans in the sport. A lot of people, especially Americans, don't realize that the actual America's original sport is not baseball. Baseball is based off of cricket, which is an English sport. Lacrosse has been played in America, in the North American continent, for hundreds of years by multiple different tribes. There's a lot of variations of the game. The most common one is the, uh, the game played by the Iroquois, or the Six Nations, which are like upstate New York, Canada. But actually, yeah, in 1884, I think it was, this fella called George De Beers, a Canadian in Montreal, saw the team, the local uh, local tribe playing it and they ended up drawing up rules and created the Montreal Lacrosse Club. They ended up doing a tour a couple of years later back to the UK and Ireland and they brought a Mohawk team back there. And then lacrosse actually started in Ireland like in the 1890s and in the UK and it stayed played in the UK, but Ireland had stopped in like 19, like when we got independence, I think we got rid of all the foreign sports and then we got it going again, myself and Chris back in like 2005 ish. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. I, I, the the name of the team, it was they were known as the Mohawk Indians at these games. And uh, at least according to Wikipedia, part of the Iroquois Confederacy uh, here. I think the important thing is that, uh, fascinating thing is the names of the athletes. And so just some of the examples here, we've got Black Hawk, uh, Almighty Voice, Flat Iron, Spotted Tail, Snake Eater, Nighthawk, Rain in Face, and my favorite, Man Afraid Soap. Brilliant names. They finished third here. The Shamrock lacrosse team from Canada were the, the first gold medalists in lacrosse. Cool that they were able to compete as like it's their sport. And that's something in international lacrosse we find very, we're very proud of that the Iroquois and the women's team as the Hedonis get to compete as their own nation. But it's actually, it's a controversial thing happening at the moment because lacrosse is trying to get back into the Olympics. The stepping stone to that is to go through this thing called the World Games, and they're hosting a World Games next year, but they're not allowing their Iroquois to compete as their own nation. And a lot of people in World Lacrosse and the organization are like, are arguing with that, like that's disgraceful. Like it's their sport, it's their gift to us is to to play the sport that has been part of their religion and their um, part of their lives for generations and for centuries. And it's kind of absurd that they can't compete as their own nation in that. There's been kind of a lot of interesting kind of controversial things that have happened over the past couple of years with lacrosse. I definitely recommend reading into it. Yeah, it's That's America's it. sport. Tell all the Americans that, that actually this is your, is your continent's true sport. The concept of nations as well, uh, these first few games didn't really exist. So there were no real national teams. People were competing on behalf of their athletic clubs. And nowadays we consider them as Canada or USA or Germany, but it was only at the next games that the concept of national teams and uh, nationality at the Olympic Games started to become a thing. And it is quite sad that nowadays, particularly with the, the Iroquois, and there was a case also, was it the, which world championship was it in the one in Manchester where they couldn't get in? 2010. Yeah, it was their visas weren't accepted. So they had a, a visa from the Hedonisi nation and 
it was first, it was kind of a comedy of errors from the US, the UK, like both first US wouldn't, they said, okay, if you travel out on your Hedonacy passport, which is a kind of a sheet of paper, um, they also would have had Canadian or US passports as well. But they said, we want to travel on Hedonacy one. They said, if you leave, you won't be allowed back in on it. And then eventually they like protested this. They were stuck in a hotel in New York waiting to get out of this a week before the World Championship started. Then Hillary Clinton, who is the Department the Secretary of Foreign Affairs or whatever that role is called in the US government, um, said that, um, okay, give them permission to leave. And then the UK was like, no, we're not accepting you now. So it was like both sides were at, were at fault there. And eventually they were meant to compete in the first game because it's their sport and they didn't actually get to compete in the World Championships. It was a bit of a disgrace. Lessons to be learned there from the early Olympic spirit, even though <laughs> the complete Olympics in 1904 were a shit show, the idea that anyone could compete and that you can represent on a more, on a hyper local level is uh, is something that is prevalent here. So yeah, maybe that uh, some lessons to be learned by the, uh, the World Games people, which is a part of the IOC, right? It's kind of like a, a B Olympic Games, right? Yeah, a stepping stone towards the actual games. We've already established you're absolutely wiping everyone else in the marathon. You're, you're, you're probably, you're probably going to get, do, get a sub two hour, you know, and you're going to go over the line. You're going to be like, oh, can I do another 10 miles? So that's a given. You're getting gold in the marathon. What else could you have got a couple of golds in? We'll, we'll give you, we'll give you lacrosse as well. You could have competed with the Canadians. Um, what else would you have liked to have come out of the 1904 Olympics with a gold from? It's a really good question. Well, I was kind of <laughs> the standing triple jump because it was the last year <laughs> of it. And then I would have been like Olympic champion forever in the standing triple jump. Very good. Do you think you could have beaten Ray Ruri though? <laughs> he, was the, he was the king of the jump. <laughs> oh, you, you would have modern training behind you, I guess. And you would have the... You would go back into 1904 knowing what you needed to do. So you would have that advantage. That's a good answer. Yeah. I like it. I'd be the reigning standing triple jump champion for all time. Yeah, mm-hmm. very, very, very good. And then there's my whole like lack of flexibility and power that uh, I would probably wouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> now, the other big question for you. For each episode, we've got, uh, we're basically destroying the current Olympic program. So we're, we're taking... We're making it better. So in each episode, the last two we've done it, and now you as our first guest will get to do it. You can take out one sport or one event from the current modern Olympic program and replace it with an event or a sport that you like. We've taken out golf and we've got tug of war. And Chris, last episode. I took out wrestling and put in kabaddi. The Indian uh, wrestling chasing game. Okay. Sport to take out. Oh, my God. I've got it. And this is a sport I actually used to compete in. I used to do a lot of horse riding as I I grow up. One thing, even though, ah, fuck. Equestrian is at the root of, like, the origins of the Olympics and the pentathlon and whatnot. But, uh, like, I I love cross-country horse jumping. I love jumping. Dressage, I'm not overly gone on. And I, I've definitely done dressage. I've competed in dressage before, and I think it's like the ability to control the animal and whatnot. But um, not a not a huge. Actually, it is a cool sport too. But fuck, I'm going to cut that one out. It's really difficult. Undoubtedly. Now the only thing is, if you take out dressage, you're going to have to put something kind of equestriany into it because, like, by our rules, 
if you're taking out a, a discipline within a sport, you're going to have to put it back into that discipline. But I mean, like, I mean, you could put in that running horse. There's some people from California competing in it. Yeah, that, that seems like definitely Olympic ideals. Well, well, people from America and you. So there'd be an Irish team. So we, we could get a gold. I know the sport I want to put in. So I'm going to have to take out a, a running, uh, like a track and field sport. I'm going to take out the going to take out the, the 200 meters because it kind of the, the 400 meters is a really like is a one of the toughest disciplines because like the full lap the 100 meter is like pure speed the 200 is a gimme it's a gimme like it's it's not really an, an essential what's the difference between the 100 and the 200 not really you just add in the bend so yeah the 200 you're gone fucking i'm gonna take the 800 out as well because like <laughs> the mile the 400 is cool because it's really tough 800 is like two laps come on so 200 800 you're gone and the sport I'm going to put in is like mountain running. It's actually, I'm going to put in one particular location and event. This race called Mount Marathon, which is a 5K up in Seward, Alaska that happens every July 4th. It's been going on for 50 or 60 years. But it's two and a half from the sea up to the top of this mountain called Mount Marathon. In two and a half kilometers, it climbs something like a thousand meters. And then you turn around and run right back down. And it's scree, it's rocks, it's cliffs, it's carnage. Uh, I'd recommend people checking out. Go onto YouTube and look up Mount Marathon. It's one of the funniest sports. But as a spectator sport, like it is in terms of athleticism, it's like bravery, being able to like break your shoulder whilst running and keep going, being able to like hike up a hill and then sprint down the most technical terrain. It's like rock climbing and abseiling just without ropes and sprinting. And there's just so much blood. So it'd be great for people watching as well. So. I would put in the Mount Marathon, Mount Marathon. I put in mountain running into it because it's now, cool. And then with drones, you can see everything. And it's like, Whoa. So which are you taking out, 200 or 800? Both. You're going big there. You choose one. 200. Oh, 200, 200. 200, okay. 200. <laughs> like, I'm a little bit concerned that we are really alienating a lot of track people. Why? They can just do the 100. No. It's just because I've been dissing a lot of distances as well. And they're all different distances than you've dissed. So, um, yeah. The 100 is brilliant. The 400 is brilliant. The 200 is cool, but it's kind of it's the same. Makes perfect sense. And that mountain running. So you, if in, your, in a perfect world, you would keep it at Mount Marathon, though, in every time. So while the Olympics is happening, wherever it's happening, all of those athletes have to go to that venue. To to yeah. Mm. It's keeping in the spirit of the intercalated games yes. um, of, you know, having to go to one location yeah. for one particular event. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, Paddy. That's, that's really good. And well, as you said, it's, it keeps in spirit with the intercalated games, which not too many people would know about, I would say, but we're going to educate everyone in our next podcast, which is actually coming next week already, as we go to the 1906 intercalated games in Athens, which the IOC now says never happened or they know it happened but they don't count it as an olympic games anymore but it was actually probably one of the best early olympic games so the idea behind it was that every four years they would have a games in athens again going back to the original olympic idea so in keeping with that i think your suggestion for mountain running is very fitting buddy i would just love the carnage would be just brilliant you would have all these stories of like of people like just like just dehydrating breaking things bears all of this like the grizzly bears up there they'll they'll add a whole extra element of fun Uh, you're preaching to the choir when it comes to bears yeah i i I think somebody tweeted at us and said uh when's ruth gonna first 
mention bears at what episodes. Um, and the first bear mention actually wasn't me. It was Patty. someone else. It was Paddy. Paddy O'Leary, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for listening. I've been apologizing to everyone from St. Louis for dissing on their city. They're actually dissing people from two states because that's like right between Missouri and Kansas. You have to apologize to all the 200 meter runners and the 800 meter runners and the dressage. So sorry to all of you. <laughs> Brilliant. You can follow, where do you follow Paddy on uh, social media? Uh, Instagram's probably the best bet, P O'Leary87. And watch our film, Coming Home, Egg Chock to Walia on Vimeo. And at the start of this episode, I noticed Chris can't pronounce Irish anymore. He was there. Egg Chock to Walia. It's the Minute dialect. Like, come on, you can't diss the Minute dialect. <laughs> <sighs> sorry sorry to everyone check out our film on Vimeo um, yeah we're really proud of them we're hoping that it'll get people all around the world to come to Ireland to do crazy running feats and just run in the mountains perfect Paddy thank you so much thanks Paddy thank you to everyone for listening and we'll be back next week with another Olympipod pod <laughs>